the Scoobola Cast. Listen up, normies. It's time to talk some shit. This is the Scoobola Cast, where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. So for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on a podcast, and you're listening to this for some reason, so good luck to you. Let's get it. White Jesus to prop the empire yeah. up. Bought the binary, you rendered under Caesar. All cause your cathedrals needed more cedar. You sold another neighbor, a seat at the table. All for the major goal to hold the scrolls in your favor. Share gospel with the slaves with precision of arrows with a 632 time nine holes with the um, Testing. All hail to God comfort. Testing. Welcome to Scoobla Cast. This is your host, Scoobla Paul. Oh, that's fucking gross. I'm going to sip this matcha. You know, legally, you can't even um, get wired from matcha. It's against the law. Matcha is not allowed to do it. Otherwise, um, after 15 minutes, if the teacher isn't there, then you're legally allowed to leave. <sighs> I, okay, so I said I wouldn't record a podcast today. Um... But I'm recording a podcast today, so we're just going to continue uh, down the same train of thought from last year, sort of debunking evangelical myths, um, and we're going to do that, and you're going to hear me clicking, because I'm, I'm actually literally clicking through notes and things like that. I wasn't ready to record today, not not really and truly, but here we are. So, hello there. Welcome to the Scoobly Cast. This is your host, Benjamin Razam, a.k.a. Scoobly Paul, a.k.a. the man behind, um, fuck, <laughs> a.k.a. the man behind fuck. Um, yeah, that's lowbrow and crass. Okay, anyway, we're going through this um, kind of deal here where we're going to question common assumptions and belief just held within our evangelical um, group think in our evangelical societies, um, especially concerning capitalism um, and uh, interrelationship and ecology and things like that. So these truths are either unconsciously accepted or influencing our lives and influencing our lives and our relationships without our being aware of them, or they're consciously accepted as simply the way things are. And on the rare occasions, uh, on the rare occasion, these assumptions and beliefs are questioned. We are told said beliefs are unquestionable, indisputable, and self-evident and things like that. All the buzzwords. All we need to do is uh, trust and trust in the simple gospel, a requirement um, we, we found in the last episode to be conflicting with the faith that Jesus embodied, as well as the faith of the Canaanite dissenter. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about some things that I that I um, knew can be really, really challenging for folks to, to even discuss, to even come to the table about. But before we panic, I just want to name the fact that in our society, it's hard for many 
to even discuss the basic pillars of capitalism. It's so, the tendrils are so ingrained. And I think it's hard because these pillars, um, not only have they been ingrained, uh, they've been divinized and sacralized, and they've been covered with this transcendence and immutability, which has only reinforced their unquestionableness, um, as well as um, their capabilities to inflict trauma. So when, in, when an individual community or society refuses to critically reflect upon themselves, they basically say, no, the buck stops here. We don't talk about nothing no more. We don't think no more. Uh, what my grandpappy told me, that's what we're going to do here. Um, shut up and eat your mayonnaise. Um, I like mayonnaise, by the way. That's, but beside the point. Anyway, um, when we refuse to critically engage with ourselves and reflect upon ourselves, our behaviors, or the ideas which we subscribe to, then that individual community or society then closes themselves off from potentially meaning, potentially meaningful transformation. I have been saying potentially so often recently. More matcha. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, and they close themselves off from potentially meaningful transformation. All this to say that while reflecting on the fundamental pillars of capitalism, while doing that may for some of us feel uncomfortable, we have to keep our hearts open. We have to stay open to the possibility of seeing our world through new lenses. So in this episode of the Scubla cast, we're going to be super fucking earnest again. Um, this is the earnest season. Next season is going to be, um, dark town USA. So let's keep it earnest for as long as we can. Um, and it's probably going to go dark town USA because climate collapse is on, uh, is happening today. I was driving from a, uh, church breakfast meeting. It was a meeting with a coworker and, um, we, uh, I just keep getting these texts. Let me turn this off. Um, anyway, uh, I was driving back home from that uh, that breakfast meeting, and I was listening to the radio. And on on the radio, there were four different separate climate related disasters that were happening. One in my community, in my city, in the little part of Los Angeles that I live in, and then the coast of Southern California. And then further up the coast in forest fires that are being hard, that are being difficult to, um, that are difficult to um, contain. Then uh, I heard that 17 million tons of sewage were dumped into the Pacific on the West Coast in the South, um, in, in Southern California. And they're saying that it's, it's going to be hard to ascertain if this is going to affect marine life no fucking shit dude that's 17 million ton gallons 17 million gallons of sewage and it's raw sewage it's not gonna be good man uh anyway why did i say that oh yeah that's why it's going to go dark town USA. Shoot. Whoa. This is, I have not blanked in the middle of a podcast before. As far as I can remember, but anyway, we're on this episode of the scuba cast. We're going to discuss what capitalism says is its ultimate intent. We're going to be earnest this episode. 
We're going to talk about what capitalism says is its ultimate intent, which is social harmony, and how it sets out to achieve it the product, through the production of wealth. We're going to focus primarily on what I'll refer to here as private capitalism. We're going to talk about some market messianism, and we're going to reflect on the predicament that capitalism often puts us in. And finally, we'll see if the story of the rich man has anything helpful to share concerning that predicament. All right, uh, Ernest Town, USA. Let's get into it. So social harmony or maximum well-being for the greatest number of people has long been articulated by the various capitalist theories as the ultimate intent of the system of capitalism. I like to use the language of relational well-being the be- uh, in the beloved community. You might use the kingdom of God if you're so inclined. I often do. But the articulated goal of social harmony in which capitalism says it's pursuing parallels what we talk about when we talk about realizing that little phrase on earth as it is in heaven. Shout out to you, John Mark Comer. You say that the garden church on earth as it is in heaven. Sell some books. Um, I don't like that guy. Anyway, I'm sure we'd all, of course, have our differences as to what it actually means and looks like. And the point is that social harmony has been commonly understood in capitalist societies as capitalism's primary goal since Adam Smith, not to be confused with um, John Smith, the colonizer from the fucking Pocahontas movie, or Adam Levine, uh, the fucking asshole who doesn't think that music exists anymore or bands exist. Adam uh, Smith, the first um, kind of pundit for capitalism. But perhaps it's most helpful uh, not to speak of capitalism uh, per se, but of capitalism's, but of capitalisms, because there are numerous kinds uh, of capitalisms in reality that we don't often hear about. Capitalism is not singular; it's actually plural. Just like Christianity is not singular; it's plural. It's many manifestations spanning the last three or four centuries. Um, uh, and they've not at all been monolithic. And I found the work of class theorists like Richard Wolff and Stephen Resnick to most helpfully articulate the plurality of the capitalisms. Um, for reference, on my main page, benjorazon.jpg, on Instagram, I had just released a list of 75 really influential books that have sort of shaped my political thought and economic thought. Um, I'm not an expert. I'm still learning. I didn't get like a PhD in this stuff. I know Hebrew and Greek. But um, for those of you who are interested, go check that list out on that page. Um, uh, But if you're interested in reading books on economic theories um, and capitalisms in depth, then I would recommend to all the listeners at all reading levels to check out this book by Richard Wolff called Democracy at Work. It's about... Um, Well, democratizing our places of work in a compelling way, and he reflects on the class structures of our workplaces and all of, uh, I just fobbed out, places, uh, and all of the places that we buy our needs and wants from. But he also talks about the pendulum of capitalisms that swing from more or less private to more or less state-managed capitalisms, because uh, we often conflate the economic theories with forms of government like authoritarianism versus anarchism and all the spectrum in between. Um, they exist in tandem sometimes. So if you're interested, I highly recommend that all, uh, that, um, that all of you read that book, Democracy at Work by Richard Wolff. Uh, okay, back to capitalism. In the 1870s, the ruling capitalist economic theory in the U.S. classical theory was replaced by neoclassical theory, 
neoclassical theory was replaced by Keynesianism in the 1930s. In the 1930s, eventually, uh, Keynesian theory... I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I... <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, Keynesian theory lost its seat to the Iron Throne um, in the 1970s by the return of neoclassical theory, which some have referred to as a kind of neoliberal capitalism. And, uh, well, uh, Keynesianism and neoclassicists, again, both theories are capitalist, um, have major disagreements over the role of the state, how much the market should or shouldn't be planned, and even in the nature of humanity. Ultimately, both um, kind of frameworks leave untouched the capitalist organization of relationships in our workplaces, which separate those uh, who directly perform the surplus labor, right, the workers or employees, from those who appropriate and distribute the newly produced surplus. The employers, the board of directors, and uh, sometimes the major shareholders, um, fuck those guys, and in cases where it's the capitalism, uh, where it's a capitalism uh, is state managed, it's state officials. But uh, despite their disagreements over who is more efficient, Keynesianism and neoclassical theorists alike also aim to achieve endless economic growth. Because at the end of the day, capitalism assumes that maximum wealth production makes all things well. But uh, since the mid 1970s, the dethroning of Keynesianism and the Keynesianism. Uh, uh, in their reemergence of neoclassic theories of dominance, the U.S. capitalist economy, once leaning more toward the state-managed and structural pole of capitalism, swung across the pendulum in the other direction, toward a more individualistic, corporatized, and private capitalist manifestation. And this swing toward the private capitalism pole, especially in the U.S., but really across most of the world, was done so on sacred ground, built upon the two sacred institutions of private property and competitive markets. In a quote-unquote perfectly balanced market, maximum wealth production is said to inevitably result in maximum well-being. And that's because maximum wealth production allows for maximum wealth consumption. And you know what maximum consumption is equivalent to? Yeah, it's fucking optimum well-being. But it's the first, uh, but is the two foundational pillars holding up the heavens of private capitalism, both private property and the market competition. And that's and that makes the greatest production of wealth even possible, which in a perfectly balanced market, like the, in the fucking Thanos kind of mentality, it will ultimately lead to the highest achievable state of human well-being. So that's a lot, right? That's a lot of content that we just kind of blew through. Um, it might be some of our first time hearing it. So I'm just going to say that again, a little more briefly this time but in reverse as well. Maximum well-being is equivalent to maximum consumption, and maximum consumption is only possible when you produce the greatest amount of wealth in the society. Uh, and the society can only produce its greatest possible amount of wealth according to private capitalism, if at all costs, if it at all costs, protects the two foundational pillars of private property and competitive markets. Essentially, what happens is privatization and competition are the magic keys to the gates of human flourishing in hu in uh, and social harmony. Um, you can already hear the ringing uh, in in the ears of just evangelical groupthink, um, private faith, and all these things. Privatization leads to these things, and then furthermore to fascism. But one might imagine the importance of the pillars to to more free market, private leaning capitalisms in this way. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. 
God gave us Eden, which was private property, and he gave us competitive markets and the natural ability to produce so that we could achieve maximum consumption. God gave us all these things and told us not to eat from the tree of knowledge because if we did, we would fall away from God to all that is other than privatization, competition, and the maximum production of wealth. And I know that might seem like a silly way of thinking about it, but failure to reach maximum wealth production, the inability to privately possess and commodify land or natural materials in a market that isn't full of competitive individuals and corporations is to free market capitalism what the fall is in Genesis. Um, It's the worst thing imaginable. So since the 70s, This thing that we call the invisible hand of the free market, which sounds demonic as all shit, it in particular has gradually been accepted across the world as a sort of savior. Uh, Let the market correct itself. Let the market correct itself. Um, Or in the the words of finance bros, yeah, I I was reading this article earlier and um, the market's really just going to bounce back. You know, my dad owns the business, so like... um, we're just doing layoffs to, to, to like, you know, help the market correct itself. You know, it's pretty sick. Anyway, pass me that LaCroix. I don't know. Pass me that truly. Whatever. That's a dumb joke, but it's canonically good for the Scuba cast. Um, anyway, the free market is truly thought of as uh, a messianic spirit. It really is. It, 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 it corrects woes in the world. And I want to use the popular Christian language bordering sacrilegious because y'all will fucking get it if you're listening to this podcast. It, it fits perfectly because that's literally how many private capitalist societies have spoken of it, but also because I think it can help us understand some of its basic claims. The free market saves us from the consequences of our sin and protects us from evil. So let's start with its salvific capacity. It's a fancy word, salvific capacity. Salvific capacity means it's it's uh, it's potential and ability to save. Good. Thank you, uh, Scuba Clem. That's the guy's name, Scuba Clem. <laughs> Human beings. No. Okay. Human beings, neoclassical theory. Um, it suggests uh, are uh, sinful. Class- neoclassical theory suggests that human beings are sinful and that we are primarily selfish and self-interested individuals. Again, this theory doesn't actually use the religious language, but it, but the parallels can be made, right, to total depravity and things like this. And the brilliance of this particular kind of capitalism is that it takes humanities, uh, our own selfishness, and channels it for the good of everyone, right, thereby saving us from the disharmony and chaos and suffering that would result if capitalism didn't channel our sinful nature. On the one hand, we were thought to be these perfectly knowledgeable, rational, and productive beings, and on the other hand, we are consumed with ourselves. And this kind of capitalism claims to efficiently organize selfish human individuals towards realizing the good of everyone by channeling individuals' productive capacities, selfish productive capacities, but not morally, like, uh, evil Selfishness? In this sense, it identifies itself as a socially organizing, invisible messiah, which saves us from the consequences of our individual sin natures. It's like, you know, keep your head down, do the work, pay your taxes, everything's going to be all right. People are going to get sick. 
you know, that form of private capitalism is also continuing our, um, and our use of religious language is said to protect us from evil. And it does so with its commitment to privatization, private property and competition, right? Competitive markets. The evil in which it protects us from is basically governmental limitation on individual choice. So you can hear this in libertarians and Republicans alike. Because any unfreedom put upon an individual's ability to choose a thing or a legal constraint on competition between individuals and corporations in the market is believed to keep societies from producing the greatest amount of wealth. So, for example, um, if they prohibit a manufacturer from using X, Y, and Z product in the thing because it cuts corners and they can produce more surplus, but it damages the environment... Uh, the free market, this kind of capitalism would really, really not be okay with that, that legislation, because it's believed to keep societies from producing greatest amount of wealth. And that's how social harmony is best realized in this framework, in the production of wealth. So you don't want to impede that. Um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors to get us kind of complacent with it. But private capitalism protects us from evil by endowing every individual in a corporation, uh, because both corporations and actual human beings are are legally thought of as persons with freedom, which is also weird. But freedom is particularly defined there as uh, to, uh, like this. To be free is to be able to individually produce, consume, and possess without legal restraint. Freedom is me measured by an individual's ability to privately produce, consume, and possess without external limitations. That kind of freedom is the pinnacle of being human, the greatest blessing we could ever know, the promised land to which this messianic market has delivered to us. If you want to eat, if you want to eat tomato flavored uh, bacon bits on top of a uh, uh, dried bacon bits on top of a salad, you can do it. If you wanted to eat um, some special French toast crunch cereal that's in the shape of a croissant, smothered in syrup, and you want to eat it in, in the shape of a puppy, then you can do it. You know, like that's, that's freedom. Um, like I, if they want to, if they want to eat soap, then uh, if there's a market for it, then it should be able, you should be able to do it. It's that thing, that freedom, silly. Um, and it can be said, uh, more can be said about this, but let's focus on one major aspect of this all for now. Um, I want us to ask the question, what happens when the production and the pursuit of wealth does not lead to social harmony or relational well-being as we've seen? Uh, next episode, we're going to ask if in the last 50 years, the, the massive economic growth we've seen globally, but especially here in the United States, has actually benefited everyone, like the theories of capitalism say, or if it has disproportionately benefited only a few. Shout out to you, cowboy Jeff Bezos flying up to the moon. Um, uh, but today, I thought it'd be an important first question to ask. This fundamental assertion that capitalism pursues maximum wealth production ultimately for the sake of social harmony, because capitalisms across the state-managed and private enterprise spectrum say that the maximum production of wealth is the primary means of achieving social harmony for our society. And while I'm all for relational well-being and realizing the beloved community in our relationships and in our lives, it doesn't seem like the production of wealth necessarily leads to human and and uh, and um environmental forces uh, 
coalescing into harmony. For example, look at the turmoil that often emerges from the capitalist class structure that we talked about in episodes one through four. Capitalism divides the workers who perform surplus or extra labor, those who directly produce the surplus goods and services from those who appropriate and distribute the newly produced surplus. Basically, employees are excluded uh, from democratically directing the enterprise that continues to exist because of their own labor, bar none. This is because more of the profits would likely end up in the workers' profits um, if the employees actually got to have a say in things. And that doesn't um, bode well for the people who are currently making all the decisions. The capitalist way of organizing our workplaces into employers and employees pits the two against each other. It doesn't matter if the workers are overworked or crushed with medical or school debt or are struggling to find affordable housing. It doesn't matter if workers have to spend more and more time away from family and friends at work so that they can have food, housing, healthcare, and maybe some education. The capitalist class structure of our workplaces concentrates decision-making power into the hands of a few at the expense of the many. All for the money. And this is... Uh, this device of cost structure can lead to familial conflicts at home, personal depression influenced by the lack of dignity and power experienced at work, health problems due to being overworked, or resentment and hostility between employers and employees and employees and other employees, especially when they're fighting for hours and whatnot. And all this seems to contribute to situations where the health and well-being of workers and their communities are second to the profits appropriated by employers. A more particular situation where well-being has been rendered second to capitalist economic growth is the historical development of big agriculture. Big ag. So I work in wine, so this is super important to me. Um, wine is an agricultural product. Big ag has perhaps most obviously continued to choose profits over people in economic growth over environmental sustainability. First off, we could look, up, look at how big ag has wiped out our small farming communities throughout the rural U.S. Uh, in America, and numerous consequences have resulted. Big ag has di displaced entire farming communities, forcing them to move into overcrowded urban areas for more corporatized work, where it has greatly reduced the diversity of crops, which has destroyed the biodiversity of our topsoil, which has then choked the upper half of our or of the Earth's crust. It has transformed food into cheap, chemically induced poison by using chemicals for crop production. These chemicals have also directly destroyed the flesh and lungs of, of many, often migrant laborers, who have no choice but to w travel the country working the fields. It's wiped out grasslands. It has um, um, totally decimated populations of bison and buffalo. Um, uh, there's uh, n uh, lobbying for the rerouting of natural waterways so that we can um, irrigate these massive corporate farms and indeed underground water reserv reserves have been completely drained and as a result has just devastated ecosystems. The ecology is all fucked up. And since private mega corporations were able to outcompete their small farm competitors, the devastation has been deemed just because what could be better for farming communities since uh, and for the nation at large than an unrestrained competitive free market where farmers increasingly with less capital lose out to wealthier paying ag corporations. We could do one more. What kinds of problems might be might people in a capitalist society run into when their pharmaceuticals are privatized? Like 
the fucking vaccine, dude. Like they are, they are in the private capitalism of the U.S. pharmaceutical company has monopolized a particular market. Let's say like that vaccine. Well, let's say that this medicine is worth three hundred dollars, or fuck it, let's say it's worth seven hundred dollars, or shit, let's say it's worth ten thousand dollars. Since the company exclusively possesses and privately possesses this particular medicine and the privatization of this pharmaceutical that people need in order to live or survive is protected by the law as a secret divinely ordained institution, then those that need that medicine in order to live are simply um, shit out of luck. Because for the sake of social harmony, private corporations must always be free to produce, consume, and possess without external constraint. And there's countless other examples we could discuss, but you get the picture. The pursuit of wealth doesn't always lead to social harmony. I would argue that it doesn't lead to it at all. And maximum wealth production doesn't always lead to individual communal environmental well-being. I would argue that it doesn't... um, lead to it at all. And when it comes down to health or wealth, capitalism seems to tend to choose wealth. And so as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, how might our Christian faith speak to to this push and pull between wealth and well-being when the production of wealth does not lead to the relational well-being of God's beloved creation ecologically, not just for people who are not believers um, and we want them to become believers, but every single human being on this planet and every inch of this space. And we have, I think we have plenty of theological resources to engage with this conflict and tension that often will arise um, between health and well, wealth and well being. I couldn't help but think about the story of the rich man as it's told in the Gospel of Mark or the rich young ruler as it's referred to in the other Gospels. It's just so apt. Uh, in this story found in the chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus isn't talking about various capitalisms. He's not talking about class in terms of the production and appropriation of surplus. He is not even talking about the production of wealth in general. Jesus does suggest, however, that the wealth of the rich man is incompatible with his vision of the abundant life, which is constituted by the first being last in the last being first. So let's take a look. A rich man comes up to Jesus and asks, What do I got to do to receive eternal or abundant life? And so at this point in the story, Jesus tells him that he knows the teachings of Moses in the Torah, so he should follow them. And the guy's like, I'm good, at least on the ones that Jesus rambles off. And this is where the story gets interesting. The rich man seems to have forgotten the economic implications of the teachings of Moses. And so Jesus tells him, uh, he says, you lack one thing, go, um, and sell what you have and give the money to the poor in and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Jesus then tells the disciples that it's impossible for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God to, or to, and to faithfully follow Jesus. And if we subscribe to the idea that faithfully following Jesus is less about believing the right things per se, and more about living and embodying God's desires and concerns in our relationships, then we can hear Jesus saying that wealth prevents the rich from faithfully living out and embodying the concerns of God for living in right relationship with themselves and with others in the rest of beloved creation. The only way that can happen is through a miraculous work of God, something we'll talk about here in a minute. 
And as if saying it's impossible for the wealthiest, most powerful people in this community to access the abundant life wasn't enough, Jesus in verse 31 wraps the whole thing up by claiming that those who are first will be last and the last will be first. And the last line might seem a little out of place, right? I mean, the guy asks about eternal or abundant life and Jesus draws a line and the guy realizes he cannot cross it. And then Jesus says the crew, uh, tells the crew that only a miracle could save really wealthy people. And then he depicts an alternative kingdom in an alternative community, which completely subverts the order of the world in which they lived in. This story for some might feel like it's jumping all over the place, but I think this last line, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, can serve as a sort of lens on the entire story. It can be said that there are two gods in this story. The first god, or the god of wealth, is the god of top-down power, and this god concentrates wealth and power into the hands of a few at the expense of the many, and uh, thus maintaining an order in which the first are first, and the second are second, and the last are last. The second god, the god of Jesus, is a, is a, a god of solidarity, a comrade god, whose very presence is a threat to the god of exploitation and oppression. And this god is out to undermine, subvert, and completely reorder the flows of power and wealth, which lead to such great sufferings and agony. The work of this god is not simply trying to redistribute the wealth that is originally possessed by the rich man. The work of this god is seeking to transform and reorder the relationships of this world. Um, in this case, we can, as we can see, two very different gods who hold two very different concerns. Jesus also invites us to choose between two kinds of faith, two ways of being that are at odds with one another. The first faith chooses wealth, overwhelming wealth, maintaining the status quo, um, order of firsts and lasts. But the second, and this is the one that Jesus says we must choose, um, to know the abundant life is a faith which subverts the hierarchical and exclusive flows and structures of power and resists the temptation to uphold the first in their positions of wealth. It confronts the world which concentrates suffering and exclusion only upon the last. So what are we to do when the production of wealth does not lead to social harmony and mutual well-being? Human flourishing in, in, and planetary sustainability, what might a follower of the way of Jesus have to say about an economic system which forces us to choose wealth over the livelihood of our neighbors, ourselves, and our friends? Capitalism, whether extremely private or state-managed, says that it pursues the maximum production of wealth for the sake of social harmony. Do we fucking believe that? And I'm not suggesting that capitalist production has not benefited people at all. As a critic, I think it's best to learn from its benefits. But when we're asked to passively trust at the production of wealth as always leading to the well-being of God's beloved creation, I think we should ask ourselves what kind of uh, God capitalism is truly wanting us to serve. What kind of faith is it forcing us to live out? If one subscribes to the belief that God is for well-being over wealth, then we must, as the rich man did himself, make a difficult choice. A choice between people in profit, life and death, the well-being of God's beloved creation, including you and me, and the endless production of wealth. So in the next week, hone in on those structures in your life and where you benefit and where you participate and where you uphold and um, fucking work to burn that shit down. Um, this has been the Scubla cast. It's an earnest episode. Um, burn Babylon down. <laughs>